to just um, remind us that I, in my zeal, skipped ahead last week. And uh, that was not intentional. I, I got to reading in, in, in my week. I got excited about the text. It was supposed to be for this week. I delivered that last Sunday. So now we're going back to the parables that I neglected before Jesus ever got in the boat to go to the Decapolis. So we're going back to the last few, few uh, uh, parables there. Uh, recapturing the setting is important for us, remember, because he's, he's gone to the Decapolis last week, which is this week, but last week he's still tell, telling the parables. So anyway, um, at this point, Jesus has been speaking to his disciples, and that's always the priority in the Gospels. We have to read the Gospel accounts with that priority in mind. He's not primarily speaking to crowds of people. He's teaching and equipping his disciples who are going to take the gospel to the nations when he's ascended back into heaven, okay? So he's, he's, um, he's teaching the disciples, and remember that the parables are specifically used by Jesus to communicate spiritual truths about who he is and about what the kingdom is like while also simultaneously obscuring those truths from people who might otherwise hear them and treat them casually, right? So this is the season of ministry whereby Jesus is pouring into his disciples because he knows his time on earth is short. He's got three, three and a half years or so to bring these guys to Christ-like maturity before he goes to the cross, and then they're let loose to take the gospel to the nations, would that we were so intentional with the time that we have on this earth. We get, I mean, I'm already, I'm pushing up on 50, right? I had 50 years to share the gospel. Jesus had three. What did he, what did he do with three years? Wow. Just think about that. Jesus is giving these men something invaluable. You can't put a price on it. He's opening their spiritual eyes to see, and, and he's opening their spiritual ears to hear. He's, he even uses this kind of language at times in the gospel accounts, and all of that centers on what is ultimately of value. Now, there's a word that we use, but we seldom think deeply upon, value. Some synonyms of the noun value would be merit, does it have merit? Is it, uh, is it something that is of worth? It's the regard that a person or a thing deserves. That's what we're talking about, value. It's the intrinsic worth of a thing. And we talk about the values that we have as people. Our values are reflected in a person's principles, our standards, our behavior. Those things speak to what is ultimately important to us right? But value can also be a verb. It's not just a noun. We value things individually. We value things collectively. But at the root of all of this for us as the redeemed people of God, Jesus is the one that we value above all others. He's the one that we value most. He is the person who is most intrinsically worthy. Our Lord and his salvation and God's word to us, the Bible, are all incredibly valuable. They have untold worth. We have not even begun to plumb the depths of the worth of these gifts that God has given us. And all of this is to say, as we set this up, when Jesus teaches in parables, 
He was obscuring the value of what was being communicated and the truths contained in those parables from those who were just casually listening so that only his committed, truly committed disciples were, were understanding, were hearing and understanding and gaining the wisdom from these things. And even then, they sometimes had to ask for further clarifications. Like, Jesus, you remember when you said that thing? Like, what were you talking about? There's, there's a great deal here that is valuable to us if we will hear it and receive it. So let's go back and let's pick up the five parables that Jesus told to his disciples in last week's text that we skipped. Um, and this is a really uh, a fun week because we're only in Matthew. I don't have to read multiple accounts of Matthew and Mark and Luke. It's just Matthew. So Matthew 13, starting in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the ending of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus told this parable to his disciples with a great crowd gathered, remember. But now he's gone indoors and he's explaining it to his disciples. This is the parable of the tear, okay? It's explained behind the closed doors. Jesus uses the idiom or the word picture of tears to make the point, as he's already done once, that there are true and false converts in the church. There are true and false converts in, and I say church, I mean the visible church, the church that we can see. When God looks at the church, he only sees those who are truly saved. That is the church. But on earth, in the broader thing we call the visible church, there are people in local churches and in the church worldwide who are tares. They're false converts. I make that distinction because, again, we, you know, from Acts 2 forward, that's something that we see in the text of Scripture. Um, how, how many of you could raise your hand uh, if I asked whether you knew someone who once claimed to be a born-again Christian and is not? Right, many of us know someone who, who said, I love Jesus. I put my, my hope and trust and faith in him at some point in my life, and now they have rejected that, or they're not walking in that. I know people like that. It makes my heart sad. And it's not always easy to see the false converts in the church, especially early on when they first come in. I mean, just like the wheat and the tares, they look the same when they're just starting up. You can't tell the difference necessarily. 
And we're not Jesus. We can't see the true condition of human hearts or the motives which drive people to embrace Jesus or make a profession of faith. Some people, sometimes people get the high pressure Jesus sales pitch. You ever been there? Yeah? That high pressure Jesus sales pitch. Man, it's like when you when you go on that vacation and then you you have to sit through the hour-long timeshare deal. Right? So I just I just want out of here so bad, I'm willing to sign up for the timeshare. Just let me go, right? This is the reality in the American church. Uh, Motives are important. Motives are so important. The American church in particular, I believe, is very culpable for our use of temporal things to draw people into the church in order to get them saved. You can't use mammon to get people saved. That's not how it works. It's a, it's, a, it's a function of the Holy Spirit. Those things have no staying power. Our emotions have no staying power. And eventually, people that, that come to Christ or make a profession based on earthly things, um, that, that, that's when they, they end up not wanting to have anything to do with Jesus or his bride. When you see people disengage from the church, well, and this is what they say, I, I have this conversation every week with people that I know. I, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. Okay, let's talk about that. And if you came to me and said, Sadie, dude, I love hanging out with you, but your wife is such a beep, I'd sock you in the face. I'm not going to be happy to hang out with you. Yeah, hey, yeah, let's go get coffee. No, you just insulted my wife. We got nothing to say. How do you think Jesus feels? Some people are like, oh, I love Jesus. I just can't stand the church. I can't stand his bride. That's not good. In this parable, the picture that Jesus gives is, is of a great harvest at the ending of the age. We, we call this the eschaton. It's, uh, it's related to the root word where we get the term eschatology. It's, eschaton means age. And, and though we focus primarily on the church, the fact of the matter is God has not given up on Israel. Now, this is, this is here in the text, too. He has not given up on Israel. Now, there were men, I'll give you a little church history here for just a moment. There were men in the fourth century. One of them was a guy named Augustine, or you could say Augustine. Uh, it just depends on which syllable you put the emphasis. It's, it's, it's the same name. Um, but Augustine argued that because Israel had crucified their Messiah, they were no longer God's chosen people. And, and it was men like this in the church who influenced others to hate Israel and to hate the Jews. Uh, in fact, so that was 4th century. Augustine was 4th century. By the time you get to the 1500s and Martin Luther, and we just, uh, happy belated Reformation Day, by the way. Um, by the time you get to Luther, um, who is a great reformer, he was so steeped in Augustinian thought and philosophy, he had these words inscribed on the edifice of his church there in Germany. The word said in German, Alle Jude sind Schweinen. All Jews are pigs. It was Luther who, re- who laid the groundwork in Germany for Hitler to do what he was able to do later. This is the legacy of the church. But contrary to what these fallible men believe, God said in Zechariah 2.8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, 
after his glory, sent me to the nations who plundered you. Listen to what he says. The Lord says, he who touches you, Israel, God is speaking. He who touches Israel touches the apple of my eye. Touches, you poke God in the eyeball. You start messing with them. It's bad news. Paul, in the, in the New Testament, Romans 11, starting in verse 25, Paul says, I don't want you to be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Yes, a partial hardening has come upon national Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. See, God's not done with Israel. He's not done with the Jews. As it is written, Paul says, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake right now, he says. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He called Israel to be his elect people. That doesn't mean they're all saved, but it means he's not done with them. He hasn't forsaken them. Ladies and gentlemen, God is not done with the nation of Israel. And they just reelected a bulldog of a politician. I'm, I'm curious to see how this plays on the national scene. But getting back to the wheat and the tares, did you know that you're going to spend eternity in one of two places? You will be forever in one of two locations. You will either enjoy eternity in the presence of Jesus and the Father with all the angelic hosts and all the saints of God, or you will spend eternity in the lake of fire with Lucifer and his demonic horde and every poor sinner who refused to repent so as to be saved. Those are the only two options. Those are the only two. So strive to make your calling and election sure. The tear in the parable has no value. And this parable speaks to the danger of self-deception. It's a dangerous thing. We have this phrase then right after that, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Listen, understand what I'm trying to tell you, Jesus says. E ears are a feature shared by all human beings, with very few exceptions. To not have ears would be a very unnatural occurrence. Therefore, when Jesus addresses those who have ears, he's referring to everyone to whom he has given his words, no matter their age, their ethnicity, their language, their status. Whenever Jesus says... He who has ears, let him hear. He's calling for people to take heed and be careful for what is being communicated because it's of great value. We need to take it in. And another way of saying, it's like saying, listen up, pay close attention. This is important. But there's a, there's a difference between having physical ears and having ears to hear when it comes to the word of God. And so seeking God's truth takes energy and it takes focus and intentionality. It takes a willingness to be challenged and changed by the Spirit of God. So we keep going in the parables here. The next parable is Matthew 13, 44. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. This is the parable of the hidden treasure. It was hidden by someone. We don't know who, uh, but it was found by someone else. And we're told that this treasure is of incredible values, of incredible worth. The man who finds it hidden in the field recognizes the incredible value of this find, of this treasure. And this is why he immediately sets 
everything else aside in his life to give his full attention to the process of gaining this property so that he can gain the treasure. He's single-minded, single-focused, laser-focused. And so he sets everything else aside. He sells all that he has. No exaggeration. That's exactly what the text says. He, he sells his house, sells his animals, everything that he has, he liquidates, takes all that money, buys that property because of what's buried on the property. It's of incredible value. He works to attain it because he understands the value. I wonder sometimes if American Christians, if we don't really understand the value of what we've been given, we need to We need to look at it closely and understand. See, this corresponds to the grace that's made available to us through faith. The the gains had to be infinitely greater in terms of worth. Like, he's not selling everything to buy the property to get the treasure to break even. This thing is of incredible value. He knows that he stands to just become tremendously wealthy. See, this is about, this parable is about temporal sacrifice. I'm going to give up some stuff now to gain things that I I would not otherwise possibly be able to attain. I'm willing to set aside sin. I'm willing to set aside preferences. I'm willing to set aside my way in order to gain the kingdom, proximity to Jesus, holiness, righteousness. That's what's happening here. This is not... Uh, This is about, again, temporal sacrifice for eternal gain. One would have to be a fool not to take this opportunity. We're talking about Jesus and his word and salvation. These are the greatest treasures the world has ever known. This is why the, the, the Jew here in this story, and I'll explain why I said that, has to give up earthly things, even everything he has in this life, in order to gain more in the life to come. So now put a pin in that and go on to verses 45 and 46. Again, so this one's going to be like the one he just told. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This had to be a pretty big pearl, pretty significant pearl for him to go sell everything. This is a merchant. This is a guy who deals in trade, who deals in value. He understands the value of a thing, and he's willing to give up everything, his whole business, to gain this pearl. This had to be an incredible pearl. It's essentially the same parable as the one we just read, but it has a twist. This is for not the Jews. This is for Gentiles. How do we know that? Well, um, the pearl is the only jewel that is the result of a living organism. Did you know that? It grows in response to irritation. And it's removed from its place of growth, and it becomes an item of adornment. But pearls have no value to Jews, because shellfish are not kosher. Did you know that? No value for for Jews. Listen to what Deuteronomy, this is back in the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy 14, verses 9 and 10. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales... You may eat, and whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean to you. So shellfish are unclean. They're unclean. So we see, again, this allusion to the church. This is a very Gentile parable. 
because only Gentiles care about pearls. The Jews don't care about pearls. The more we study these parables, I don't know about you, but the more questions they bring up for me, it's like, wow, just, man, it's blowing my mind. But again, the value of what is being gained by this merchant is is, is great. It's it's indescribable. and it's why the Gentiles have to give up, Jesus is saying, earthly things in order to gain more heavenly realities. That's what's being taught here. And yes, this is, this is why Joseph Smith titled one of his books, The Pearl of Great Price. It's kind of funny to me because it's ironic that the Mormons, the LDS, claim to be descendants of the early Israelites who came to the Americans and, and, and settled here. But there's no, there's, I don't know if you've read any of his stuff, please like, unless you're really rooted in the Word of God, don't read The Pearl of Great Price or The Book of Mormon. If, you, if you're looking for apologetics and try to how to combat those false religions, then that, that's another issue. But there's no legitimacy to their claims, and they belong to a false religion that cannot save. And here's why. Not because they made all that stuff up. They did. Joseph Smith just made it up. If he didn't make it up, the devil appeared to him and deceived him. Either way, it's false. But let me say this. The, the, all of this, the, the problem is that religious system, every other religious system in the world except for biblical Christianity relies on works to get to God. And God's word says you can never do enough good works. It's impossible. You can't work yourself into heaven. You can't do enough good to please God. It's impossible. So just, if you have a copy of that, if you've you've written all in it to be able to talk to other people about why it's false, God bless you. If you just have those books, you're like, I don't know, this kind of helps me in my walk with Jesus. Burn it. Burn it. Get it out of your house. It's by grace alone, not by works. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, look, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world. You were, you were following the prince of the power of the air. That's another name for Satan. You were following Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the same spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience now. And then Paul says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were all carrying out the desires of our bodies and minds. And we were by nature children of wrath. We were going to get God's wrath when we stepped out of this life and into eternity. That's what we were going to get. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And then he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's, that's positional right? Obviously, we're seated in a theater right now. We're not seated with Christ. In the he- we, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, but we're not there physically yet, right? Okay? But by grace you've been saved. He raised us up. He seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show, demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so he says it again. Paul says, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of your works. You didn't get this by effort. It's not your works. So that no one 
can boast. We are his. And then he says this. It's, it's almost, it sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. He says, you can't boast. This isn't, this isn't a result of works. For we are his workmanship. God's, Jesus is the one that's done the work, not us. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Whatever good works we do come out of the abundance of grace that have been poured out on us. And we don't do good works so that we can uh, negotiate with God and find a better seat closer to the throne. The good works that we do are an overflow of our gratitude for what he's done for us. And so we keep going here. Next parable in Matthew 13 is this parable of the dragnet. Look at this, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and it gathered every, fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and, um, and they sorted the good into containers, but they threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, this is the parable of the dragnet. So remember that um, all around the Sea of Galilee, the way that people made their living was commercial fishing, right? And fishermen in the Sea of Galilee, at Jesus' time, they would cast these large nets out into the water and haul in large catches of fish. And some of the fish would be good for eating, and others would not. Some of, uh, some of them had to be thrown back. Um, and, and there, well, there were some that had, could be thrown back. There were a lot of fish that you didn't want to throw back. Because if you're just taking the good fish out of the water and throwing the bad fish back to mate and reproduce, eventually you're only going to have bad fish. So you take the bad fish, for the most part, and you, you, you take them out of the water too, and they're gathered into containers and they're tossed out into the garbage heap. Now, these dumps were receptacles for dead animals and broken equipment that could be, couldn't be fixed. And in, right outside the, the city of Jerusalem, in the Valley of Hinnom, there became a dumping ground for the sewage and refuse of the city. It was a place crawling with worms and maggots. In the days of the kings in the Old Testament, uh, many people don't realize this, but child sacrifices were offered there. And, uh, but by the time of Jesus, they were defiling this place with refuse. Um, fires would burn continually to destroy the garbage and the impurities. And so the name of this place outside of the city became Gehenna. And Gehenna became a word that was used as a symbol of punishment of everlasting fire because in the city dump there, the fires were never quenched. They kept burning and they kept burning and they kept burning. And so Jesus is speaking to his disciples and us about separating out the genuine from the imposter. Now, a term that became popular in the last few decades is rhino. Do you know if we, if we talk about our, our government and I said, that guy's a rhino, would you know what I'm talking about? Right? Republican in name only. It's a rhino. Many of us have been frustrated by politicians who claim one side of the aisle but vote the opposite, right? Washington is full of rhinos, but the church is full of chinos, Christians in name only. There's a lot of chinos in the church today, a lot. Um, time and testing reveals the true heart and whether it 
That heart values the Lord Jesus, values his ways. We've already touched on this. I don't want to belabor the point, but this great catch of fish of every kind is really the people of all the nations. And in there are good fish and there are bad fish, right? This is the ethnos. These are the nations. Jesus is telling us that the same kind of sorting is going to take place at the ending of the age, at the, at the eschaton. This is, the sorting is going to be done by the angels, he says. And he doesn't just say it here in the parable. If you skip to the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 24, listen to what Jesus says. Um, in 29, Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the heavens and, and, and everything will be shaken. And then will appear the, the, in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and the angels will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is not the rapture of the church. This is the ending of the tribulation and the judgment of Jesus as he comes back to the Mount of Olives and his feet touch the Mount of Olives. There's an earthquake that splits the Mount of Olives. And Jesus, from there, judges the nations. And so here in Matthew 24, you skip down to verse 37. Jesus says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. <coughs> For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. This is not rapture. This is the judgment. These are the angels coming to take people to the judgment. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, there's just two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he'd have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Again, not a rapture passage. This is a, this is a common mistake. Jesus says his angels are going to sort people out just like those fishermen are sorting at the fish in this parable. And Jesus is the one who sees clearly Jesus is the one that judges rightly. This speaks to the reality of hell, the idea that these fish are going to be tossed out into the, the heap of Gehenna, right? And, and, and so this is, we've got hell is the county lockup. I don't know if you've studied eschatology in this regard. People go to hell. We talk about people are going to hell. That's the county lockup. And, and if you've been arrested by the police and you, you committed a, a grievous crime, Here's what's going to happen. You're going to go before a judge, a judge for an arraignment, and then they're going to put you in the federal penitentiary if you're guilty. They're going to move you over to the federal pen. Okay? So hell, think of hell as the county lockup where you're held until your arraignment before the judge. And then after he's found you guilty, you're going to the federal pen. You go to the lake of fire forever, forever. And this is why all are judged, no exception, and God's judgment is final. And that's why we preach the gospel. One more. Matthew 13, 51 and 52. Jesus says, have you understood all these things? And they said, yes. And he said, therefore, I tell you, every scribe 
who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So we wrap up with this parable of the householder or some, some Bibles have the heading, uh, the parable of the old and new treasures. And Jesus is pointing out that the scribes, those who knew, <clears throat> knew about and, and wrote out the old covenant scriptures and understood those scriptures, they, they were going to become, dis- many of them would become disciples later after Jesus had ascended into heaven, right? And, and at, we're talking about the ascension. We're talking about Pente- the day of Pentecost. Um, those men who had studied the scriptures as scribes, they were going to become like the head of a household. They would be, become like life-giving fathers spiritually to these newborn babies in the kingdom because they had been steeped in the old covenant. They had been steeped in the word of God. And I mentioned spiritual fathers, but we're told, call no one father, for you have one father in heaven, which makes me wonder if the Roman Catholics have even read Matthew. But, um, but when it comes to these scribes and even some of the Pharisees, we know Nicodemus was already you know, embracing Jesus uh, as far back as John 3. So um, that they were going to aid in the task and leadership of this new covenant body we call the ecclesia or the church. And, and they would be able to tie in old covenant truth to this new covenant reality once Jesus had resurrected and gone back into heaven. So those who came to faith were going to be indispensable to this new fledgling church. And Jesus' accomplishing salvation opened the door for many Jewish scholars and religious scribes and leaders to be born again. They knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And, and, and so the, the admonition here is um, we're to share what we've received. These people had received the word of God, they'd received the old covenant, and then they received salvation, many of them, and now they're sharing what they've received, just like the good man who brings out the old and the new treasures in the house. So how do we tie all this together? How do we, how do we make sense of this this morning? Paul indicates that this very mystery is the church itself. And it, it was not revealed in the old covenant. It was not revealed in the Old Testament. He says in the, in the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 3, Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of my stewardship and God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've briefly written. He says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Nobody in the Old Testament was looking ahead going, there's going to be a new covenant. And and people are going to get saved by faith through grace. Nobody was looking at that. Nobody was, was seeing that. It was a new thing that God was doing. And so Paul says, um, it wasn't made known to the sons of men and other generations. This has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets through the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles, you and me, if you're not Jewish, I don't know how many of you, I, anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, you and me, if you put your faith in Jesus, we, we're saved. We're saved. We're fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So the apostle Paul himself confirms that we've been given a stewardship. We, the capital C church, we've been given a stewardship 
of something incredibly valuable that was new in the first century. It was new to the church. The church was new to the church, but this was new. And this is the treasure hidden in the field. This is the pearl of great price. He who has ears, let him hear about this valuable gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, through faith. And nevertheless, the danger of self-deception is still very real. And we need to take heed because in Jesus' kingdom economy, we have to give something up in order to gain. We can't hold on to our sin in this hand if we want to gain salvation over here. We can't. You can't stay in both worlds. Don't be a chino. I have this weird nagging sensation, this feeling that that, that word means something to, to the young people that there's like like chortling going on when I say that. And it's like, did I say something? It's like, culture, like I don't know, like I'm old now. And like, like that's a word that, that I don't know. Anyway, it's my own insecurity, right? I'm like, ah, I don't know. Uh, we can't hang on to our sin if we want to gain salvation. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10. He says, look, don't, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I've come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies are going to be the people in their own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life, you're going to lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, then you'll find it. What we give up is ultimately worthless in comparison. And what we gain is indescribable in terms of value. So share, share what you've received. Maybe you're unaware of this reality, but every single one of us is going to stand before God and give an account. We're all going to be judged. Not not whether or not we're saved. If you're saved, you're saved. But we'll be judged, saved people, the church will be judged based on our uh, what we did with the gifts and the information that God gave us. Will you stand before him in his righteousness, which has been imputed to you, or will you stand before him in your sins and hear the words that no human being ever wants to hear? I hear Jesus say, depart from me. I don't even know who you are. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus is telling us about the Father and what he's like. Jesus is telling us about the judgment of what's coming and what to expect. He's giving us insider information about the kingdom. Use it. Embrace it. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. We don't always see or hear clearly, but Jesus does. We press into him and obey him, look to him, listen to him. Read and digest the word of God. Without it, we're blind, deaf, and dumb. We ingest it into our souls and minds. We can see, hear, speak, and obey. We're, we're new creatures. We're ambassadors to this dying world around us. So, so let me just wrap up this morning by giving you a couple of passages. I just want to read these passages about our older brother, Jesus. And let these just inform your heart today and this week. Listen to what Hebrews says. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe with the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, in in chapter 1 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of overall creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible. Did you know there's an invisible realm? Did you know that demons are invisible largely to our eyes? There's an invisible realm. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him is the fullness of God pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I'll just give you one more. John 1, 14 to 18. John records that the word of God became flesh. And he tabernacled, he dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is the one who I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the imprint of the Father. And then the prophet Hosea comes to our rescue as we wrap up this morning. The prophet Hosea tells Israel, return to the Lord. Pursue the knowledge of the Lord. What, what do we do with this? What do, what do we do with these, these parables and these truths that we've learned this morning? Well, I, I would just ask you to, to consider three things this morning. Stay connected. Stay connected. Resist the temptation to fall out of fellowship. Resist the temptation to be a, a once-a-month attender. I don't think that's any of you. But resist the temptation to, to disconnect let the Holy Spirit lead you in staying connected to the body of Christ. What happens when we stay connected is we begin to resist the temptation to fall out of fellowship more. We, we don't allow the fear um, of the tares, these false converts in the church, keep us from coming to church. Because people are prickly, you know? People can be prickly, but we're not worried about that. We just want to be in the presence of the Lord. We want to be with the brothers and sisters. We want to fellowship. We don't allow that to frighten us away from fellowshipping with other believers. So we stay connected and then stay sharp. Remain vigilant. Remain always on your guard. The Bible tells us that our enemy Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. We need to stay sharp. Stand and fight in the spirit and put on the armor of God, Ephesians 6. If you don't know how, find me. I'll link you up with somebody else in the congregation that can walk you through that. We'll equip you. I'll do that with you. We've got to stay sharp. We've got to stay connected, stay sharp, and stay on target. Remember that the value of staying true to God's Word is not only that God's Word keeps us safe, but it's of eternal value. Like everything in these parables, when people gave up everything they had to gain something else, they're saying that is of ultimate worth, ultimate value. And that's what we're saying about Jesus and the gospel. See, Jesus gave his men 
something invaluable. And now he's passed it on to you. He's passed it on to you. The Lord is opening your spiritual eyes to see and, and, and to understand um, and to have spiritual ears to hear. All, all of the centers on what is ultimately of value. And, and that's a word that we use often, but I don't think we think about it uh, deeply. What is it in our lives that's really deserving of merit and worth? And I would just say it's only the Lord Jesus and his word. Ultimately, it's only Jesus and his word. Worth is the regard a person or a thing deserves. It's intrinsic value, but nothing has more worth than Jesus Christ. That's what these parables are about. Nothing has more worth than Jesus Christ. At the root of this for us as redeemed people of God, Jesus is the one we value most. He is the most intrinsically worthy. So we're going to stop here this morning and just celebrate that as we pray together. Let's just go to the Lord. Father, we just come before you this morning and we just thank you that you've given us a treasure in Christ Jesus that we still, even this side of heaven, cannot begin to fathom. You've given us something that we get excited about and and then some days because of circumstances we get distracted about. But ultimately, Lord, We've not even begun to unpack, to unwrap, to to understand and to see and to experience what you have purchased for us on the cross. We, We haven't even begun to taste the gift that you have for us. And 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 we're just in awe this morning, Lord, that all of this goodness and grace being poured out into our lives is not because we are are great in some way, or we have attained something, or that we have done something to merit your favor to pay attention to us. None of those things are true. It's about your grace. It's just about your grace. You love us because you made us, and you want this for us because you're good. And I pray that every heart here today would really just again, or maybe for the very first time, just surrender. Just, just take a position of receiving what God has for us, what you have for us, Lord. We want to know you, and we want to know you more intimately, and we want to experience your power and your love and your mercy. So we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Jesus gave the disciples something invaluable, and now he's passed it on to us. He's opening our spiritual eyes to see And he's opening our spiritual ears to hear all of this centers on ultimately what is of greatest value. And that's a word we use often but seldom think deeply upon. What is deserving of merit? What is deserving of worth? And I would just say only the Lord Jesus and his word. So stay connected, stay sharp, stay on target. Resist the temptation to fall out of fellowship and remain vigilant and always on your guard. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.